This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. So I was, I suppose, trying to represent two doubts that I have. What should poetry do? You know, what does it mean? Where does it reach out to? And then the other doubt, which kind of cancels that one out, which is, why should it? Why should it reach out? Why can't it just be itself? I feel that there's one way to, perhaps, to make what I do legitimate is to, is to, is to get good at the craft of it. Um, <laughs> as simple as that, really. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Poetry Society. <clears throat> My name is Mike Sims. I'm here with Patrick McGuinness, poet, novelist, teacher. And now editor. And now editor of the uh, latest summer issue of Poetry Review, um, together with contributor, poet Sam Willits. We're going to explore some of the content of this issue and we're also going to talk to Sam about his work. Patrick, you call this issue Poetry And. Can you say a bit about why there's that giant ampersand attaching to the word poetry? Yes, it's an ampersand followed in my mind by three dots. Uh, poetry and what? I suppose that um, one of the things I found about writing poetry and teaching poetry to students is that people think that poetry is a kind of refuge, that it has its own disconnected little special place where people go off and have special feelings and don't really connect those feelings up to anything larger. So when I got the chance to edit Poetry Review, which was like a cross between being a very powerful president and a janitor, that is to say I was able to choose who I wanted, but I also had to make it all fit together and sweep the floors and drain the radiators and all that, I thought that I would try to put together an issue that connected poetry up to as many different walks of life, um, walks of thought, I suppose, um, walks of art as I possibly could, while also trying to ask the question about whether really poetry had any duty to fit in with anything else in the first place. So I was, I suppose, trying to represent two doubts that I have. What should poetry do? You know, what does it mean? Where does it reach out to? And then the other doubt, which kind of cancels that one out, which is, why should it? Why should it reach out? Why can't it just be itself? And I hope the issue asks both of those questions and avoids answering them in interesting ways, rather than simply answering them. Uh, you have endeavoured, though, to answer some of those, those questions in some interesting ways. So could you say a little bit about some of the connections that you were trying to make? Yeah, sure. I, I thought one of the first things I wanted to do was to put in a lot of translations. And I did that. We have translations from Japanese, from Italian, from German, from French. And I believe, of course, that the poetry world, especially the British poetry world, needs to stay open to what's going on outside it. I also took the opportunity of bringing in a number of American contributors because I think that English language poetry and British poetry needs to be open to different kinds of English and different kinds of ways of seeing um, the language that we, that we write in. I am slightly haunted by the idea that poetry might be also a little bit irrelevant and that's why I've tried to include essays about poetry's relationship, say, with, with politics, with contemporary politics, but also poems about, about war, poems about conflict, but never 
poems that are sort of full-on or immediate, declaring what their politics are or what their beliefs are, but something always kind of sidelong and tangential, because I think if poetry is going to have a connectedness, that connectedness can't be obvious. It has to always be slightly unexpected and um, to come in at an angle, really. Poetry has to use its marginality. I don't think it can pretend that it is central anymore, if it ever was. Maybe I could ask you a little bit about Gilles Ortlieb, who's present in the issue as a as an essayist, and also there are translations of his poems by Stephen Romer. And, and also, because he's present in both those ways in the magazine, whether his work in particular um, speaks to the kinds of things that you're wanting to explore. Yes, well, Gilles Ortlieb is my favourite French poet writing at the moment. And what I, what I admire about him is his ability to make poetry out of the everyday, but without ever promoting the everyday into something it isn't. And the poems that I've chosen in this issue are poems about really sitting on a train, about those tiny little movements of the mind, of the heart, of the soul, of the eye, that define a train journey. And um, the kind of fullness and plenitude that you can get from these, these seemingly empty moments. And I also asked Gilles to send in an essay about about what it was about train travel that uh, that that opened one up to this this kind of way of perceiving the world, and it's a wonderful way of inhabiting the in-betweenness and the fleeting and the transitory. And I think that his poetry does that in in the fullest and, and, and richest possible way, without ever pretending that the everyday and the ordinary is anything other than itself. I think poetry often has a tendency constantly to over-promote feelings and sensations and situations as if uh, as if they were somehow spectacular. And there's something incredibly sort of honest and tamped down, but at the same time really lyrical about, about the way Gilles writes. And I, I'll read you um, a small extract of his essay. Um, this is him sitting on a train in the south of France looking at the weeds and... Um, He talks about how he's casting an eye over a few grassy weeds piercing here and there the asphalt coating of the platform. It occurs to me, he says, that these clandestine plants, fragile and disdained, at the mercy of any old foot, plants that don't officially exist, aren't so far, after all, from providing us with a serviceable yet absolute definition of beauty. And what I like there isn't absolute, and I don't and it's not even really the word beauty, it's the conjunction of serviceable yet absolute, this idea that something is ordinary and also total and complete. And a lot of Gilles' poetry is like that, and I'm very pleased to have been able to put him in this magazine. I think it's the first time, in fact, he's appeared in English. I find this idea of empty moments very sort of interesting, and in some ways it takes us back to that second observation you made. Perhaps poetry needn't conserve in itself with its connectedness. Could you say a bit about that? Yes. I I said in my editorial that I felt that poetry was slightly marginalised and that it was being pressed from above by essentially the grant culture and the belief that it has to be demonstrably useful to society, despite the fact that we have no real definitions of what is or isn't useful to society. And so that's pressing down from above. And from below, there's a kind of indifference of, the, of readership generally um, to poetry. So poetry is in this odd 
situation where it's constantly called upon to do things and stand for things that it can't do or maybe doesn't want to do. And I suppose in my editorial I tried to say that on the one hand we can have that connectedness in poetry, um, but we can only really have that connectedness by by being ourselves in the first place. I don't think you can you can desire that and want it and hope to write poetry that, that fits any sort of bill. One of the essays that I commissioned for this issue is by a terrific American poet called Daisy Freed. It's called On the Suspension of Distaste. And there she's talking about a creative writing program where she is discussing a left-wing um, American poet with a group of writers. She's talking about Anne Winters and her book, The Displaced of Capital. And there's this very funny moment in Daisy's essay where she says that one of her creative writing students, who is a Mitt Romney voter, and, and this essay, I guess, takes place during the, the, the last American election, simply doesn't like the poem. She thinks, on the one hand, that this supposedly left-wing poem by Anne Winters uses too many words, therefore it's too intellectual, but also that it's kind of uh, too left-wing and anti-capitalist. And what I like about Daisy's essay is that she says, in the end, there's nothing you can do about somebody's politics. You can't do anything about their political views and their political taste. And this causes her then, once she's reached this block, to look back at what she likes and what she dislikes and realises that however rational you are and however, however much you think about why you like what you like, you will come up in yourself as much as in others against this wall where you simply like or don't like things. And I, like, I, I admired the way she managed to explain that space that we need to live for the totally irrational, which is where most of our politics are located, in what we like in poetry. And I think this is an important essay that um, that she's written for Poetry Review. The sort of balancing half of that essay is about um, a writer that she hugely admires. And then she starts to worry a bit about authenticity, doesn't she? And she's worried that she might like the poem, not because it's good, but because she recognises the feelings that are described in there and so on. Yeah, so that space for the irrational is the... That's the interesting bit. I think we can explain pretty much everything up to a certain point, and then we come against a sort of blankness or a darkness, which is actually part of why we are or feel the way we are um, or feel, which doesn't lend itself to being rationalised or, or properly explained. And what a lot of the poets, I think, in this issue come up against is that, that darkness, that bit where words don't reach, but of course you need to be using words to get to the point that words don't reach. You can't just start with that blankness. So I like that as well. I like I like a use of language that is totally articulate up until the point and it which in fact actually makes the point, reaches the point and creates the space where it no longer is articulate and where there'd be no point in being articulate anyway. It's a bit invidious to ask you to pick out particular examples, but are there particular pieces in the issue that you feel very strongly that that's, they sort of exemplify that? Well, I think um, I think for certain that um, Sam's poems exemplify that. One of the things that I decided I would do when I got the chance to guest edit this issue was to get in touch with various poets, both here and abroad, whose work I'd read, whose work I admired, and whom I thought 
that really I should have in any issue that I wanted to leave my mark on, by which my, I, by my mark I mean my, the imprint of my tastes. And Sam's book of poems, which came out I think two years ago, three years ago? 2010, yeah. Struck me when I, when I read it as really the, one of the best first collections I'd read for a long time. And I was struck by the incredible verbal sophistication of it and at the same time, the the immediacy of it. And I remember writing to one of the literary magazines and saying, I really like this book, will you let me review it? And they wrote back and said, ah, other people like it just as much and got there before you. So I thought, this time, I'm going to track him down. And track him down I did, and mm. here he is now. Well, yes, and, and thank you. Um, a lot of what you've been talking about is... Um, it's stuff that I, I think about and worry about um, quite a lot. Um, I mean, things that I picked up on, the word authenticity uh, was one that, that has really triggered something for me because uh, I, I worry generally about, about relevance, about, about the purpose of poetry, about the legitimacy even of, of, of writing it um, and, you know, who's going to read it. Um, I don't myself read, I suppose, you know, as much um, contemporary poetry as perhaps as I should or even as I'd like to in a way, um, for various reasons. Authenticity is, is something that does really worry me. I recently tried to, uh, to write a poem <laughs> suggested to me by um, reminiscences uh, of soldiers in the First World War, uh, combatants, and halfway through, I thought, well, you know, what the hell am I doing? What am I doing here? This is this is crazy. This is secondhand. There's just there's no real point to this. It's it's completely false. Um, and gave it up. I perhaps I'm in a way more comfortable uh, writing very personal and even sort of confessional sort of poems because at least I'm I'm confident of their authenticity. Um, someone said to me, uh, consoling me. Uh, after I failed to win, I was you know, I was shortlisted for when I was runner up and lots of things, but didn't win any of them. And uh, and a friend uh, who knows a lot about contemporary poetry said, um, I, I, I don't think it's very fashionable to write confessionally, to write very personal poetry of the, of the, of the sort that you write. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but um, it is something that that, that that concerns me, and. Um, I like the idea of 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 craft you know I, I feel that there's one way to perhaps to make what I do legitimate is to is to is to get good at the craft of it um, <laughs> as simple as that really and, and to be as clear as possible um, I have a big problem with poetry that i that I struggle to understand and I feel it it, it does poetry no no favors you know in your um, uh, first collection which is called New Light from the Old Dark. Mm. You write quite a lot about, about Europe, both your own uh, experiences of travelling in Europe and something of your family history in Europe too. So again, did that sort of speak to some of the things that Patrick was talking about in the essay, you know, that sort of European tradition? Is that something that interests you and concerns you? In your, or, and does it still? Uh, yes. I mean, can you perhaps clarify European tradition? No, I can't really. <laughs> no, I'm hoping you will. <laughs> Um, there were times when I feel, you know, it didn't happen to me. I'm not. I'm. I, I'm. I'm not entitled to this. 
um, I am kind of appropriating it. I'm, I'm laying claim to something that, that I don't have uh, a right to. It, it didn't happen to me. And I have this strange relationship with, with, with I suppose, 20th century, I don't know, you know European history, um, in that it didn't happen to me, but it did, sort of thing, um, in the sense that um, my mother was very, very deeply affected by her experiences as a child in Poland in the Second World War and very nearly died there, and her whole extended family was wiped out and so on. And she was traumatised, you know, and it affected the way she was. Um, so it's very direct, and said my mother, and I, you know... Um, at the same time, it didn't happen to me, and it is. There are times when I look at it and I feel this is, in a sense, just as secondhand as my writing about the First World War or something. You know, it's. I remember when the when one of the one of the worst phases of the Bosnian conflict, and I remember writing, starting to write again a poem about that, and and giving it up, feeling that it was that I was um, out of my depth. But with, um, I mean, we're talking now about the Second World War in particular and about the Holocaust. Uh, yeah, I, there are times when I, when I feel very uncomfortable writing about it at all. Um, but I do, I think I needed to, I needed to try anyway. You said earlier that you thought that maybe you wrote in a confessional way. And as someone who admires your poetry, I don't think I've ever thought of it as confessional. <laughs> and the reason for that is because you used the word earlier, craft. Everything that you write about has been submitted to something other than than just confession and something other than just feeling, and is being processed by thought, and um, that's that's what makes it different, and that's why that's why people remember it, and that's why I remembered it, and I think that the poetry that I like best and have tried to include in here is poetry that isn't inert, and you can be as inert if you just sort of chuck your energy into a poem indiscriminately and it flops about everywhere. And you can be as inert doing that as you can be by making something that looks like it's made of made of plaster or paper mache. And I think there has to be, there has to be a kind of pressure exerted by thought, by wanting to make the words work together. And I've noticed that in your own editing process. You... You think about every single word. I think that's that's a way that that's perhaps a, a way for me to to feel legitimate. That I see right. that as a sort of a kind of benign manipulation, you know, in the way that perhaps you know a stand-up comic reaches in and, and tweaks something, you know, in my mind makes me laugh. Um, that it's 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 a manipulation, um, but it's it's an enjoyable one. It's a benign one, and that's what I want to achieve um, in a poem, and. I think that um, it seems to me that, that it's this thing of thought and feeling. I remember, you know, at school and being taught about metaphysical poetry. It seems to me all poetry is metaphysical poetry in a sense, or <laughs> poetry I know. Um, and I am very interested in that idea of sort of thought and feeling, of a kind of passionate argument, I suppose, where everything is working towards, you know, everything is working and everything is working towards this end of, a, of, of that kind of manipulation of, of uh, you know, effect, of that effect on the, on, on the reader. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that that's what works best as well, that thought and feeling work together, but they work together quite often by working against each other. So you get that sense of 
sort of a barely kept down discord that somehow resolves itself into a harmony that's much better than any harmony you'd have got if you hadn't pushed things around or, or pulled them around. And um, I suppose that that's what I like about, about about the way you write as well, because a lot of what I've, I've read of yours has been quite personal, but it's it's been through something, something not systematic necessarily, but something quite forceful. And that's, I think, your idea of craft and precision. That, that, that's, that's what I want. That, that's what I look for. And I, I, I like the idea of unobtrusive craft, the thing about the, you know, things that are, that are easy to write, aren't necessarily easy to read, and sort of vice versa. And I, I like the idea of, as I say, of unobtrusive form and craft and care um, and so on. In, in a poem, and uh, I mean, there are times I look, but I, I, I read my own poems. Sometimes I, you know, occasionally open the book and read one, and, I, and I'm actually struck. I, I'd forgotten, this, I suppose, that how much I thought I'd put into the thing, you know. Um, and I'll notice things which may or may not even even be noticeable to to, to other readers, sort of half rhymes and things that that sort and and um just choices of, of word and 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 even of, of line endings and things and um i think it's very important to me to, I, I do think very hard about, about the poems i write in that sense um yeah are you working on a collection now yes um i am uh it's been quite slow slow going uh i don't have a lot of faith in my in my own sort of quality control uh that's that's part of the problem and uh i think also i i i, I quite like to move away from certain things and there are times i think well i'd like to write you know because i suppose the selling point of the collection was the fact that there were poems about addiction in it and i, and I was an addict i'm you know in a sense i still am an addict of course i'm just not an active addict at the moment and i sort of think well i you know perhaps i'd like to write one more sort of one last word poem um, about addiction and also one last word poem about, uh, again, about, about my mother's experience and, and that, that, that part of my family history and my history, actually, um, and then be done with those things. Um, and it is a question for me of finding a, something that, that, that's worth writing about that's sort of legitimate. Again, it comes back to that. Uh, th- th- that's that's a big that's a big question for me. What poets most influenced the way you wrote, or what poets made you want uh, to write in the first place? I'm still just uh, amazed by by the wasteland. Um, I have to say, it, 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 it amazes me, and and sometimes you know, I find it a bit discouraging. And there are times when I and this doesn't this is not only in poetry but in other forms of art as well. I look to, to look back at what happened even just before the First World War, but certainly during and after, and how, how astonishing the, uh, the movements that were happening then, modernism and Dada and so on, those seem to me to be you know, a hard act to follow, in a way. I mean, still now. This is something else I sort of picked up, I think, in, in your conversation earlier. Um, I was recently asked a question. I, was, <coughs> I did a reading in Liverpool, and afterwards I, there was a question and answer, and... Um, this young woman asked me about about politics, and I answered quite evasively at the time. And, I, and I, my answer was about sort of uh, divorcing the, uh, an artist or a writer's politics from from the art, in a sense. You know, um, this is this has come up recently with Wagner again, um, 
and I said something about Eliot and that however disgusting his values and particularly at the time that he wrote The Wasteland and so on and attitudes were that, you know, that <clears throat> I still find that poem in particular absolutely astonishing and get a lot of pleasure from it. But that was actually quite an evasive answer. Afterwards, I was left thinking very hard about her question, I have to say, and uh, wondering why, because I, it's not as if I'm apolitical in my day-to-day -day life, but I, I think my my poetry is, and that's something I, I perhaps I, I could look at um, with this second collection. That's perhaps a bit of a cowardice on my part, or a sort of a reluctance to uh, uh, set my stall out, sort of thing. Or simply that you don't think that poetry is the the best place to be. It could be having that. your politics. It could, it could well be that. I mean, it might be that that I anyway. Could you know, couldn't write, can't write uh, a successful sort of political poem thing. Um, that's perfectly possible. I always think about, in terms of poetry and politics, you know, we were talking about the connectedness. Um, I was just thinking of the story, the cautionary tale, really, of Ibsen in in France, you know, and when Ibsen started getting performed in, in France, there was the time of the sort of big anarchist attacks and all the intellectuals were anarchists and they took Ibsen's actually not at all anarchist plays and turned them into great sort of emblems of anarchism and this really pissed Ibsen off. Meanwhile, all the people who had written really political plays were totally ignored. So, and I, and I thought that the history's got this way of sieving things out so that the politics gets either forgotten or completely ignored, and the stuff that's only kind of tangentially uh, or glancingly political gets suddenly uh, a huge amount of politics injected into it. Because actually, politics isn't in poetry or in theatre; it's it's in the air, and air, and it becomes kind of lightning rodded down into mm. whatever work of art there is. And I think that's the best way for art to be political. But we still want it to mean something and to be connected to something outside itself, and that that's the big. That's a big problem and a big challenge. Mm. And we also need to ask why we want that, why we want it to be connected up, you know. Um, why should poetry always feel it has to give an account of itself? Yeah, I mean, I think to be perhaps a bit more positive from my angle, but um, no, I think poetry can be a, a, something hedonistic, a joy, a pleasure, um, a hit, Know, something to indulge in, something really pleasurable, um, and I, I, that somehow that's not getting across to an awful lot of people that it, that it can that it can do that, that it has that potential. Which poem would you like to read, Sam? This poem, <clears throat> yeah, this is called the Bemusement Arcade. A dream of the penny falls, a heap of days as pennies life's small change, and a mechanical shelf nudging them untiringly towards the drop, but so slightly you know they'll hardly fall. That's how time was when I was young, a negligible pressure. I'd wake each day to find my heap of time as good as undiminished. So how did I miss the Niagara Cascade? This thing's rigged, or I've been dreaming. The heap of little days much smaller now, but my pocket's nearly empty, and no one here, and the sea so high and dark outside. Great. That's it. God, you read well. <laughs> <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk. Thank you.